0: Prayer. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your mercies. They are new every morning. We thank you that we could gather together here at Gospel of Grace and to uh, really learn more about you through your word and also through the understanding of logic. And I do pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters, that they would think well upon this material, that I'd be able to communicate it well, and so that we'd all be equipped better to contend for the faith, but also to understand who you are, through your word, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now this morning, as you can see, we're going to be starting formal logic. And the old joke goes, that does not mean that you have to have a tuxedo on, right? You can be casual and study formal logic, because formal logic merely has to do with the way we're going to be structuring arguments. But I want to begin this morning by talking about the battle for the mind, Okay, And what I mean by the battle for the mind is I want to talk about what place reason and rationality has in our faith, and I want to begin with a quote from Tertullian. Most of you probably remember that he was a second or third, late third, or early third century theologian from Carthage, and he had a wonderful quote where he was really wrestling with the relationship between faith and reason, and his quote was, it was a question what relationship is there between Athens and Jerusalem? And he said, what concord is there between the academy and the church? And so what Tertullian was really wrestling with is, what relationship is there really with logic that comes from the philosophers and our reasoning in the scriptures? And where I ran into this question headlong was, when I was in seminary, I was dealing with a postmodern generation that said, you can't know anything. Including the scriptures. So when I said, oh, yes, you can know, in fact, you're bound to know, Jesus says in John, was it 1248, Bob? This is that which will judge you on the last day, the very words that I have spoken. If we can't know them, then we're going to be judged anyway. All right? So when I told this postmodern generation that we can know God through rationally understanding the scriptures, I was called a rationalist. And so the last thing that I want you to think that you are, just merely because you believe that you can understand God's word rationally, logically, is I don't want you to think that you are a rationalist. So I want to begin this morning by explaining what a real rationalist was, and I want to show you kind of a spectrum of thought and where we should line up. Rationalism, if you're going to take one person who really codifies what it is to be a rationalist, it's a man named Benedict Spinoza. Benedict Spinoza was a philosopher in the 1600s. He was a lens crafter technically by trade. In fact, he only lived 40 years or so because he had so much of the glass dust in his lungs. And he never taught a single class in philosophy or logic at a university, yet he was so influential. Most of you have heard of Hegel, right? Hegel said if you're not a Spinozaite, you're not a philosopher at all. Okay, now what was so revolutionary about Spinoza? Well, he was really the first of the rationalists. What Spinoza fundamentally was was a pantheist. Now, everybody can remember that a pantheist means that all is God. And because all is God, the universe, of course, is God. And what he reasoned then is because the universe is God, there can be no transgression of the natural laws of physics, they're immutable. Why? Because they're the laws of God. And so you can see where his rationalism starts to come from. He is really the first to start trying to demythologize our New Testament and, in fact, the Old Testament, the entire Bible. So if you want to know where liberal critics come from, they come from Spinoza. Spinoza says miracles can't happen. Why? Because that transgresses the natural laws of physics that govern the universe, and the universe is God. So he has to demythologize the entire Bible, okay? Now, here's the key point, though, of being a rationalist. As a true pantheist, he is God himself. And so what he believes is that he and all other human beings have all inherent, or I should say all data inherent within them. And so he believes he can sit in a corner unaided by any revelation from God and reason to all truth. Does that make sense? that's a rationalist I don't need the special revelation namely the scriptures I can sit in a corner and because all ideas are inherent within me already I just merely uncover them using deductive reasoning I can sit autonomously in a corner and reason myself to all truth now are you and I claiming that absolutely not now there's a reaction to that obviously You have Christians who are now going to have to defend the faith. Spinoza and his kind are saying, these miracles in the Bible, they're not true. He demythologizes it. And so, all of a sudden, the miracles within Christianity are under attack. Christians react. And they become apologists. Well, what happens is you have this debate between those who say that the Bible isn't true, basically, and those who say that it is true. But there's a man who comes along in the 1800s named Soren Kierkegaard. I would say he's a, one of the first irrationalists. What he attempts to do is you have this battle between those who say you can know, or I should say those who say that you don't need revelation and those who say that you do. The rationalists are saying the Bible's untrue, and then you have Christians that are saying it is true. But Kierkegaard tries to cut the Gordian knot by saying you can't know whether it's true. Does that make sense? So you got liberals saying it's not true, Christians saying it's it is true. Kierkegaard comes along and says you can't know if it's true, and that's what's called fideism. How many have heard of sola fide? We're saved by faith alone. Well, fideism is faithism, and so what Kierkegaard teaches is that God is holy other. Okay. Now when he says God is holy other, he's not using h o l y. He's using W-H-O-L-L-Y. And so what Kierkegaard contends is there is no contact point because God is so different. There really is no contact point with him in language. And therefore, what he elevates is not knowing God through the scriptures. Why? Because you really can't know him that way. You can't know the infinite with finite words, so he reasons. And so the only way to know God is through this existential experience. So he elevates what? Really mysticism. How do you know God? You have to have an experience. So that's Kierkegaard. He's irrational. That is really the foundation of the neo-Orthodox movement, which is really a kissing cousin to the emerging church. Okay, so think about it. On the one side of the spectrum, you have rationalists who are saying, we can sit in a corner. We don't need the revelation from God and we can reason to all truth. On the other hand, the irrationalists like Kierkegaard, and this is our generation, they're saying, yes, we have divine revelation, but you can't know God through that. It's, we, we can't know him through the word, we have to have an experience. And so they become irrational. Now what I'm claiming is that we're neither. The biblical demand is that we say, yes, we're bound to know God through his special revelation, But we can know and we must know Him rationally through understanding that special revelation. Think about the scriptures. 1 John 5.13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that what? You may know that you have eternal life. Well, if it's true that Kierkegaard says we can't know anything about God, why is John saying we can know something? Why does in 2 Peter 1... Peter calls us to add to our faith knowledge. If it's impossible to have knowledge, rational knowledge, why are we called to have that type of knowledge in the scriptures? And so that's where the battle of the mind is. Dear ones, our society is on the Kierkegaard side. And they are going to tell you that you cannot understand your scriptures rationally. And that's why they want an experiential faith. That's what we're fighting against. Now, with that... Let me just talk about foundationalism. Foundationalism is really the basic engine of Christianity as far as epistemology. Epistemology is a fancy word that has to do with the study of knowledge. So think of foundationalism as our vehicle. It is the vehicle that says we can stand on this foundation and we can know other things, including the Bible. And if you think of foundationalism as an engine or a vehicle... The engine of it is, uh, not coherentism, it's the opposite of coherentism. It's the correspondence theory of truth. So foundationalism is the vehicle. What drives the vehicle is the correspondence theory of truth. Remember I had mentioned that a few weeks ago. The correspondence theory of truth simply says this. A propositional statement is true if it corresponds to reality. If I say that I have $5 in my pocket, that's my favorite example, And I opened my pocket, and sure enough, there's $5 in it. That was true because my statement represented reality. Okay? So the correspondence theory of truth, the way we know things, is through the basic reliability of our sense perceptions. Notice I didn't say the perfection of our sense perceptions, but the basic reliability of our sense perceptions and the laws of logic. We have the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity, the law of excluded middle, the law of rational inference. And what these laws do, along with our sense perceptions, is they enable us to stand on this firm foundation and reach up and know other things. Well, foundationalism is firm, even if my PowerPoint presentation isn't. So the idea then is we can stand on that and know other things, including the scriptures. So there comes along this postmodern movement that's taking our foundation out from us. That's what the battle's all about. They're taking foundationalism, and they're throwing it to the wind, and they're replacing it with a different system called coherentism. Now coherentism is not built on the correspondence theory of truth. You and I say something is true if it corresponds to reality. The postmodern coherentist system says something is true if it's socially constructed and agreed upon by the community. It's a socially constructed reality. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, you can have a a society or a group of people who can agree on a bunch of things and claim them to be true, but are completely missing the real world, completely devoid of reality. Are you with me? So a great example of what coherentism is, it's a structure and a belief system held by a community that has nothing to do with the real world. They're in la-la land. And a great example of it is an example that Bob uses in some of his writings, and I think maybe a video or two, and it's the example of Monsters, Inc. Would you share that with everyone?
1: Yeah, it's a kid's movie that is predicated on the silly notion that when kids have nightmares, it, it fuels the energy for this city that, that they're in. And so they got a, the monsters show up after the kids go to bed and try to scare them. And the more they scream, the more power they have, the fuel, the, the city. Well, the whole thing's absurd, but if you watch it, the thing that makes it an interesting m- movie that'll keep you watching is the coherence. So Everything that happens fits into that idea. The system. Yeah, even though it's an absurd idea. Yeah. But it all works together as a system. And so when I was in the seminary in the 90s, this coherentism was the new way of looking at things. And they threw everything else Oh, It's the old modernism and rationalism. So they, my beliefs did not fit in very well, and it got worse after that. Okay, and so there, what's the issue? And so if coherence is all you need, and they said, well, it's like a ship. You can take a plate of steel... You drop in the ocean, it'll go right to the bottom. But if you rivet together all of these plates of steel into a ship, it'll float. Mm. And I pointed this out in class. I, I'm really glad I went to that seminary when there was these bright people that you could just, I, you know, debate. Right. They were smart enough. They were some of the best people in this new postmodern. And I could test my ideas. If I, they'd shoot them down if they could. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's the what's the problem with the with the ship analogy? Well, the ship actually touches the real world as they drop it in the ocean. Right. The ocean really exists. Non-contradiction really does work because the ship that floats is not the same as a ship that goes to the bottom <laughs> of the ocean, and so they're just slipping foundationalism and calling it something else, and then the really key issue, and this I put in in my book about emergent, is that how do they know that a coherent system is better than a non-coherent system? And I, I challenged in class with people that went and got PhDs, and one of whom is now the top theologian over at Bethel College. I said, aren't you just taking a new foundation and putting it in? And so you're foundationalist as I am. You just your foundation is coherence, right. and you use non-contradiction to test it. Right. What have you gained? What's different? Th- they, nobody, you. not the professor, not these brilliant students, not the people who are now running Bethel College and Seminary, some of whom were in that class as fellow students, no answer. Exactly. Debated Doug Paget, no answer. Wrote a book about it that I gave to the emergent people. No answer.
0: And you know, Bob, the reason there is why. Not. I, there is no answer. There exactly. is no answer. What Bob God did is. God
1: made us with the tools yes. that we need to live and survive as creatures made in God's image on his earth.
0: Yes.
1: Seeing real things, understanding categories. Now, this may sound real heady, and that's not, that's uh, I knew issue. going into it that my book wouldn't sell very many copies because <laughs> most people don't want to deal with things on this level, and they don't have to. They're they're very well just to go forth and realize that there's a difference between a thistle and a flower that you want. Right. Okay? Post-modernity so-called reaction to... It's, it's a poison pill. Can I yeah. tell you one more thing that's practical yeah, about this? Because yeah. when I did seminars in different places in the country, the number one question was well, who cares what is it's not practical? Right. Well, it could be the reason that, for instance, in our town St. Louis Park, there's this Catholic church that's absolutely busting at the seams with new people, young families, yeah. going into the Roman Catholic church. What? Why? Evangelicals are going over to Greek Orthodoxy. They're going back to Rome wrote an article about it and they called me and said, yeah, we are going to Rome. One was a fellow student I had with me in Bethel Sem. Because you don't need to know the truth. You want the pomp, the, the circumstance, the high arching ceiling, the mystery,
0: experience,
1: the romanticism, yep. the incense. Who cares whether any of this is true? It doesn't have to be true. Exactly. We just need to have this mysterious romantic experience that makes us feel close to God. And dear uh, saints, who we're losing is our children and our grandchildren. That's right. And they're going over to the Catholic Church, and we can't know the truth anyhow. We might as well have all of the, you know, the hocus pocus and the, exactly. Yeah, unless you're like me with asthma, you can't take the incense. You have to go there. Right
0: <laughs> Thank you, Bob. The- but you know, it's, it's not the real world.
1: They're going into exactly. La La Land in a religious sense. And we better be able to have an answer to this. And I don't That's expect exactly right. I'm going to sell all kinds of books.
0: What the answer has been for us? But it's got to be
1: a good answer.
0: Bob, wouldn't you say that the answer has been from us as evangelicals when we're dealing with this issue? We say, "Well, look at what the Bible says." Do we understand that the they Pope, don't care. They don't care, and the reason why is what they're saying is you can't know your Bible.
1: Yeah, you. They're you taking your
0: foundation it, out. That but was well, the
1: key point in the debate with Paget. Was that I met exactly. in John twelve forty eight. You're going to be judged by the Bible whether you
0: believe it's true or not. Amen. That's exactly I have right. I
1: question. I was just letting Rich know there's a chair.
0: So oh. <laughs> just so everybody knows what's going on. Rich, we
1: got a chair for you. I
0: don't believe it. So just to let it be known, Rich has a chair. <laughs> so again, here, here's the issue and what Bob is mentioning here. Think about it. We have a bunch of Christians who are responding to the postmoderns, this coherentist assault, by saying, Well, look at what the Bible says. But you see, they're taking the foundation out because they're saying you can't know the Bible. All right? So we keep saying, Well, yeah, but the Bible says, and they're saying you can't know the Bible. And so because we're not equipping evangelicals to understand the difference between coherentism and foundationalism, we have nothing to offer. And these kids think that they're smarter than all their evangelicals and they go start their emerging churches. It really boils down to this. They are saying that our foundation of the laws of logic do not apply. They do apply, and here's why. It's very simple to prove that they can't get rid of our foundation because in order for them to get rid of our foundation of logic, they have to use logic. Think about the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction says if A, then not non-A at the same time in the same relationship. Take, for instance, some postmodern who says, I don't believe that the law of non-contradiction exists. And you just simply reply and you say, oh, I see. So you're saying it does exist. They say, well, no, it it doesn't exist. They say, oh, I I know, it does exist. (laughs) And they say, well, no, it doesn't exist. And you say, well, I understand what you're saying. You're saying it does exist. And they're saying, well, no, it doesn't exist. And what they're getting at is what? The law of non-contradiction can't not exist. And exist at the same time in the same relationship. They have to use the law of non-contradiction to try to get rid of it. You see, it's a self-refuting argument. Uh, Norman Geisler points out, he says, anytime you have to use something in order to deny that it exists, you don't have a very good case. Yeah. Do you imagine using a shovel to try to deny shovels? Right? That's what they're doing. So it's a fool's errand. But unless we are able to point out the obvious, they're gonna, we're going to simply be those who say, well, the Bible says, and they're saying, you can't know your Bible. They're cutting our foundation out. Think about the law of identity. The law of identity says A is A. This podium is a podium. That's how we identify things. That table is a table. Now, let's say they wanted to deny the law of identity. All you ask is, well, what law? They say the law of identity. Well, which law? The law of identity. You're making them use the law of identity when they're identifying which law. You can't get around the laws of logic. You cannot. You can, as hard as you can try, you will not get around the laws of logic. Does that make sense? It's a firm foundation. We can stand upon it and know other things, including the scriptures. Why? Because we serve a God who has said in Isaiah 118, come, let us reason together. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're like crimson, they'll be white as wool. Our God calls us to reason together. Why? Because we're made in his image. It's a battle for the mind. Dear brothers and sisters, let us not be those who say, you know what? This is too difficult. It's as simple as understanding that in order to deny foundationalism, they have to use the laws of logic that they're trying to destroy. It's irrational. Okay? Now, with that, I want to show you one other law just to make something perfectly evident. The law. In fact, you know what? Let me just go through these real quick. The law of non-contradiction. If a then not non-A at the same time, the same relationship. The law of identity, A is A. That's what I just mentioned. The law of excluded middle, either A or non-A. Either a dog or a non-dog. Either a cat or a non-cat. The law of rational inference has to do with going from what is known to what is unknown using rational inferences through deductive reasoning. And I'll show you an example of that. That's a little bit more difficult, but. It's basically we can go from what's known to what is unknown, okay? So we can do that. Why? That's how we learn, all right? Now, the other one is many of you have probably heard the law of causality. That really is assumed within the law of non-contradiction. If someone says, I believe that the universe created itself, you don't even have to pull out the law of causality because think about it. How can the universe self-create itself? It would have to not exist and exist at the same time to put itself into existence. It violates the law of non-contradiction. So, the law of the causality is assumed within that. So, this is our firm foundation. We can know other things, including the scriptures. And I want to show you, though, an example of what the law of non-contradiction is and what it is not. Again, it says, this is the law of non-contradiction. If A, then not non-A at the same time in the same relationship. Here's what I want you to keep in mind. The very end of that sentence where it talks about the same relationship when you're using the law of non contradiction, you have to be comparing things within the same category. Okay, now let me give you a perfect example of this from the scriptures. Many liberal scholars will claim that Jesus is speaking in a contradiction here. Because what they would claim is that Jesus is talking about losing life and gaining life. And after all, you can't lose life and gain life at the same time in the same relationship. But when we're very careful, let me read the passage Matthew 16 25. We'll see that it clears up. It says, For whoever, Jesus says, wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, when we're talking about losing it and finding it, are we really talking about the same category of life, the same kind? No, we're not, are we? When he's talking about losing it, he's talking about, category a that's our physical life and so what he's saying is yes there's one kind of life your physical life you're going to lose that if you follow me or you may but what are you going to gain you're going to gain a different kind of life category B eternal life so do you see how that's not a non, that doesn't violate the law of non-contradiction because it doesn't violate the same relationship cause clause okay does that make sense you have to be, yeah, Bob. One of the uh,
1: things I noticed on a class like we're having here is that people would wonder why do we need to even do all of this? It seems like kind of a waste of time. Um, and isn't this something away from the scriptures or whatever? This is necessary for our survival yeah. and for us to understand what's under attack. Yeah. Okay. The the rationality that's necessary for survival on the face of the earth was established by God Himself in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Okay. And it distinguishes humans from animals. Now, if you think that's not a big issue, it is. One of the more popular religions religions today is ecofeminism. They don't want to distinguish between humans and animals. Yeah. In fact, the warm fuzzies are just uh, the. Gaia, the, the goddess of the universe, is going to take care of us. But it's just its imminence with no transcendent God. Now, let's go to the Garden of Eden. So I want to show you that this is important from a biblical perspective to establish a biblical worldview. Okay? Now, there was two things before the fall that shows that God intended humans to be rational and not instinctive like a beast. The first was the creation of, and demarcation of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A is not non-A. A being the knowledge of tree of good and evil. Non-A would be all the others. Yes. And those categories are not fuzzy. They're hard and fast. Satan comes along and makes them fuzzy. If you want to know where all this stuff's coming from, it's coming from Satan. Yeah. You know, everything's relative. Everything's gray. Everything's fuzzy. There's no categories. Yeah. Secondly, Adam named the animals. By naming the animals, you're creating identity. In other words, there's categories. A cat is a cat, a dog is a dog, they're not the same. Right. So by naming, you're categorizing, and then it makes it possible to function. Now that all happened before the fall. Okay? The fall doesn't change that we're created in God's image, but it mars it. And what comes to be is thistles, confusion, lies, things that aren't fit with the world we put in. Postmoderns. Yeah. And so there's an attack against logic. So as Christians, we don't need to apologize that we believe that we use our rational mind. I grew up on a farm. You can't say that a crop that you lost through a pestilence... It's the same as a bumper crop. Right. You, if you start thinking that way, you'll never pay your bills. Right.
0: Yeah. You'll never pull your weeds. Thanks, Bob. That's wonderful. Um, you know, when we talk about this is not an example of a contradiction right in this passage, because, again, we're talking about two different types of life. Oftentimes, when you read commentaries, you'll see commentaries talk about contradiction, paradox, and mystery. And I just want to talk about those categories. A contradiction is a violation of the law of non-contradiction, okay? It tells you that you can't go there. You've made an error, okay? That's not what happened here. Jesus did not make an error, all right? A paradox technically, although we use it in our modern day oftentimes synonymously with contradiction, but a paradox technically is an apparent contradiction, okay? In other words, what we would have here, I would say in Matthew 16, 25, is a paradox. Now, it's an apparent contradiction, and what that forces us to do as the student of the word is we look deeper at it. We say, I know Jesus doesn't err, okay? He is the Son of God, and so what am I not understanding here? But when you look at it more closely, the paradox clears up. It's not a true contradiction. Is everybody with me? Now, what's a mystery? Well, a mystery is something that we just simply don't have data for, okay? We don't have, it's not been revealed, okay? Paul often talks about, he says, brethren, I tell you a mystery. Well, now he's revealing it, and it's no longer a mystery. But sometimes people want to know how many angels are dancing on the you know the head of a pin well that's mystery we we don't know any of that okay so think about contradiction it's absurdity don't go there paradox an apparent contradiction study it harder it'll clear up mystery we don't know okay now let me give you another example of law of non-contradiction I'm gonna show you here how Paul now is using the law of non-contradiction to refute opponents who are denying the possibility of a resurrection And so his opponents really are violating the law of non-contradiction, all right? Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. It says, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So realize what Paul is doing is he's holding his opponents' feet to the fire because at the end of the day, there's only one category that's really relevant here. And the category is category A. It's all resurrections. Okay, it's all resurrections. They're, the opponents are saying there is no such thing as a resurrection. Resurrections are impossible. Okay, so if there's no resurrections, well, guess what? Jesus Christ would be in that category. His is a resurrection. And Paul is saying he was raised from the dead. And so if there's no such thing as a resurrection, then these, of course, Paul's teaching is contradicting that. He's saying, well, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Or more importantly, as Paul says, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, these opponents are contradicting him by saying there's no such thing as a resurrection. Again, we're dealing with the same category, resurrections. Is Christ's resurrection a resurrection? Yes, it's in category A. And therefore, you can't have no resurrections in Christ's resurrection at the same time, the same relationship. Is that clear? Okay. Now, let's go on to another law. The law of excluded middle simply says either A or non-A. Okay, it's either a dog or it's a non-dog. Now, it doesn't say what it is, but it's either A or non-A, right? Now, what I like to use the law of excluded middle for, and by the way, all these laws flow really from non-contradiction, I like to use it in the abortion debate. The unborn are what? They're either human or they're non-human. Okay, now think about what we call human beings. We call them human beings. Being means that you have existence. Notice the pro-abortion side doesn't deny the existence of the unborn. They're not attacking the being side. They're attacking the human side of it. So we all agree that they exist. So if something exists, it's either A or non-A. So the question before us in the abortion debate boils down. It doesn't matter. Everything boils down to this. What is the unborn? They're either human or they're non-human. And I put the law of excluded middle to those who are pro-abortion, and typically I have to explain the law of excluded middle because of our public school system. But then what I do (laughs) is I say, okay, they're either human or they're non-human, and you're saying they're non-human. So what are they actually? And you can tap your foot. Are they a lizard? Are they a muffler bracket for a 79 pinot? What are they? Now, don't fall for the routine that they often will give you, they will argue that they're potentially life. Okay, but does that fall into either A or non-A? No, it's either or. They exist, what are they now? And what they're trying to do is cleverly find a third option. This law says either A or non-A, and they're trying to say, well, there's B as well. Okay, they're, they're trying to say that they're potentially human. But you know what, Jones? I'm potentially the wealthiest man on the planet, <laughs> right? What am I actually, a million short of a millionaire? I'm potentially the fastest man on the planet. What am I actually? Very slow, I'd pull a hamstring past 100 yards. Okay. If I told you you could have a job, and you're potentially going to make $6 million, now what are you actually going to make is all the difference, right? Nothing exists in the area of potentiality. Okay? So this is devastating against the pro-choice class. Yeah, go ahead, Andy.
1: I just wanted to mention that when I was teaching the informal logic, this is where we got the, uh, um, the middle ground fallacy. Yes. was a violation of this law of excluded middle that we talked about uh, two weeks ago, I think.
0: Yeah, good catch. Yes, thank you. Now, what I want to do is, um, now the, remember, we've gone through the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle. Remember, the law of identity is really simple. A chair is a chair. You're just simply labeling something. The law of rational inference I'm going to begin building on right now. What we're going to do is we're going to construct arguments in here. Okay, And what I mean by an argument is not a heated exchange. Okay, And that's what I sometimes um, get troubled with when Christians think, well, you're teaching people to argue. Arguing isn't nice because that's a heated exchange. Really, all an argument is is simply providing reasons for the basis of a conclusion. That's all we're going to be doing. Why do we believe something? Well, we're going to be given reasons for that. That's our argument. And we're going to be putting arguments in syllogisms. Syllogisms are simply the mode by which we're going to presenting our data. A syllogism has premises followed by a conclusion. Okay, so in our argument, remember, we want to provide reasons. The reasons are found in the premises of a syllogism, and then it's followed by a conclusion. So if I use the term syllogism, realize I'm just talking about an argument. We're going to have premises where we provide our reasons, and we're going to have a conclusion. That's all it is. People get a little nervous when they hear syllogism and they tighten up, right? A syllogism? It's just an argument. We're providing reasons for the basis of our conclusion. Okay? Now there's all sorts of different types of syllogisms. This is one, there's a categorical syllogism. I am not going to be getting into those here. They're very difficult, but I will be teaching them. Where's Andy? There's Andy. We'll be doing it in Andy's studio live, right? And we're going to re- Tape. Delay. Taped. Oh, that's right, it's true, it's tape delay. But we'll be handling those. So if you want to cover those, we'll be doing those. But I don't want to put you through them here. Okay? The one we're going to spend a lot of time on are hypothetical syllogisms. That simply is an argument where you say, if this, then that. Okay? And they're all over the New Testament. Next week, I'm going to show you that in the Bible, there are four classes of these. The third class, they call them conditionals. There's 300 of them alone in the Bible. So in every page you flip in your New Testament, you'll be coming across a hypothetical syllogism, more than likely. Okay? So they're very important. That's what we're going to spend the most time on. But there's also a conditional called a biconditional, and that says if and only if this, then that. Okay? We'll be talking about the significance of that. I want to keep rolling here for the sake of time. Then we're going to come across disjunctive and conjunctive. Disjunctive says either this or that. Conjunctive is this and that. Okay? Not hard. Not hard. And then the last thing we're going to be covering together is a dilemma. A dilemma is two disjunctive syllogisms put together where we're going to put our opponent in a nasty quandary. And they're simply going to have two bad options to choose from. To so say, if you hold to your position, you've got bad, op- bad option A and you've got bad option B. And they'll say, gulp, you win. And, and that's the idea. Okay, So that's the last thing that we're going to do. Now, let me just talk about arguments again for just a moment. I hear oftentimes from Christians that no one was ever argued into the kingdom, but realize that Paul himself spent much time, it says in, for instance, Acts 18.4, reasoning and persuading Jews and Christians about the faith. We are called in 1 Peter 3.15, yes, to sanctify the Lord Jesus in our hearts, setting him apart as Lord, but also to be prepared to give an answer, the apologia, a rational defense, For the hope that lies within us from everyone who asks with gentleness and reverence. Okay, so we are called to give a rational defense, to give good arguments. It's not a suggestion, it's a command that we have in the scriptures. Okay, all right, now with that, let me turn to validity, truth, and soundness. I want you to be able to discern the difference between these three categories. When we're talking about a valid argument, we're merely talking about the structure of the argument. Okay, an argument that is structured correctly thereby not committing a fallacy. Okay, so realize we're not talking about truth. If you say somebody has a valid argument, it doesn't mean that it's true. It simply means that it's structured correctly. Is that that clear? Now, when we start talking about truth, what we're saying is that the premises correspond to reality. If the premises are true, or if the premises correspond to reality, that's when you have truth. Now, here's what's so beautiful. When we start constructing our arguments, think about the Bible. The Bible's going to be presenting us data. Is the Bible true? Yes. So oftentimes when you're dealing with a syllogism in the Bible, you're dealing with a premise that's true. Okay? Well, here's the beautiful thing. This is a sound argument. When an argument is structured correctly and its premises are true, the conclusion is necessarily true. Now you have a sound argument. So think about it. The Bible gives you premises, and they're necessarily true because it comes from the Word of God. So if you structure your arguments in a valid way using premises that come from the Bible, you will necessarily have sound conclusions. Does that make sense? Or sound argument. All right. And that's really what the law of rational inference is. Deductive reasoning is the basis by which we go from what is known to what is unknown. okay? Whoops. Uh-oh. We don't want that. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So deductive reasoning is if an argument structure is in valid form and its premises are true, then the conclusion is necessarily true. How many in here have heard of a priori reasoning? A priori simply means you can rule something to be true without looking any further. It's by definition true. If someone comes to you and they say, well, you know, I believe that the universe self-created itself, you can a priori rule that out because it violates the law of non-contradiction. That is the strength of deductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning deals with necessary conclusions. If the premises are true and it's structured in a valid way, the conclusion is necessarily true. And that's what's so exciting about this because you can say, I know that I know that I know that this is true. And I think that's tremendously exciting or should be for us as Christians. So that's the difference between validity, truth, and soundness. Okay, now, let's talk about hypothetical syllogisms. Simply put, a hypothetical syllogism is comprised of an if this, then that. That's all it is. If this, then that. Now, what you have to realize is that in the logic realm, the logicians, they use the if part, they call it an antecedent. The then part is called the consequent. Okay, that's just the terms that they use. But if you're dealing with biblical scholars, when you read a commentary, the biblical sources, they'll use the same type of hypothetical syllogism, but they call them conditional sentences. And the if portion, they call a protesis. The then portion, they call an apodosis. It's the same thing. I just want you to be aware of that because you're going to be reading lots of commentaries in your life. And if someone says, hey, so-and-so said this in the Protestant, but their apodosis is this or whatever, you need to know what's going on, okay? That's, that's how it's structured. Now, let's look at an example of this here. If you are at church, there's the antecedent or the protesis, then you are in Sunday school, right? All right, now, let me give you another one. It builds off of this. If you are in Sunday school then you are studying the Word of God. And then we add one more. If you are at church at 9 a.m., then you are studying the Word of God. This would be an example of the law of rational inference. Now, here's why. Notice, I got a point to the screen here. Notice we started here with A. If you're at church at 9, then B, you're in Sunday school. And then we said if B, you're in Sunday school. Sorry, I'm having a hard time driving here. Then C, you're studying the Word of God. And then we went back to A. If A, you're at church at 9 o'clock, then C, then you're studying the Word of God. So we went from what was known to what was unknown. That's just the law of rational inference, and that's how we learn things. Yeah, Bob.
1: This is also uh, known as a chain argument, one of the most yeah. famous chain arguments mm. in the Bible. Romans eight twenty nine thirty. 30. Yes. 31 thereabouts.
0: That's a good example. The foreknown,
1: said. the predestined, the yeah. justified, the glorified. It's all the same people. The one follows another, follows another. Exactly. When I was in seminary taking logic, I took that section of Romans. I'm pretty sure my professor, your favorite guy, Leroy Schultz, <laughs> yeah. I didn't think he really believed in it. So I, I, I put it into the technical uh, format. Yeah okay, of the therefores and, you know, using their symbols, took that passage, put it into the format, brought it to this professor, said, isn't this a valid chain argument? Yeah. And he said, yes, it is. Every piece is valid.
0: Isn't that funny? So he agreed logically, he just never used it well, himself. Well, he had a different, <laughs> he
1: had, it turns out he had a totally different set of assumptions yeah. about the Bible, I and mean, he was very yeah. postmodern, but
0: yeah, thanks. That's a great example. In fact, we're going to use um, we're going to get into those sorites where you pile the arguments up. Uh, we'll probably get into some of those here. Oh yeah, so, yeah, those will be good. Um, you know what I want to do now is I want to talk about validity. Remember, what is validity about? It's about the structure of our argument. It's not about the truth, but it's about the structure. So we're going to talk about valid structure of hypothetical syllogisms. There are only two valid deductions that we can make from hypothetical syllogisms. The first one is just simply affirming the antecedent. So when I say you affirm the antecedent, I'm saying that you affirm the if portion. And when I say affirm, think of a plus sign, or you're simply saying this is the case. You're affirming it. Whatever the if portion is, you're affirming that that is the case. Okay, so the only valid deduction you can do with the antecedent is affirming it. Okay, if you try to deny it, that's an invalid deduction. I'll show you that on the next slide. Now, the next thing we can do is deny the consequent. Okay, denying the consequent, think of a minus sign. Sometimes I'll say negate the consequent. I mean them interchangeably, deny or negate. So that's the then portion, and you're saying that is not the case, okay? Now, notice these are the only two things that you can do and get a valid deduction. Okay, what can you do? You can affirm the antecedent, or you can deny the consequent. I like, I'm a simpleton, so I have to have memory aids affirming the antecedent AA, you have AA batteries, or you can deny the consequent, you have DC, direct current power. Okay, if that doesn't help you, that's the only thing I've got. (laughs) You're probably smarter than I, so you can have your own there. But let me um, give you an example here, again, from what we just used. If you are at church at 9 a.m., that's the antecedent, then what, you're in Sunday school. So let's just simply affirm that. We are at church at 9 a.m., we're affirming that that is the case then what necessarily follows well you're in sunday school that's a valid deduction it doesn't mean it's true but it means from the premise that's structured valid that's a valid argument doesn't mean it's true but it's valid now if the premise is true and it's valid then the conclusion is necessarily true and that's what we're aiming for ultimately Okay, now let's try another animal here. Let's now, we affirm the antecedent. Let's try denying the consequent. What we have to do is, remember, use the negative sign now. Okay, so now we would have to say, you are not in Sunday school. Now think of this, by the way, let me stop for a moment. Think of this as an equation. Remember, if you had an equation, whatever you did to one side, you had to do to the other? Well, you always begin by either denying the consequent or affirming the antecedent. But once you've denied the consequent, then you follow it over by doing the same thing to the other side. So think if you you negate this, you have to negate that. Does that make sense? So what you do is you say, you are in Sunday school. I'm sorry, you are not in Sunday school, therefore what? You are not at church at 9 a.m. Does that make sense? Okay, so whatever you do to one side, you have to do to the other. But the validity occurs with doing the right thing at the beginning. In other words, you have to either affirm the antecedent Or you deny the consequent. That's all you can do. It's that simple. So, with that, let's look at some invalid deductions or fallacies. There's only two, as you can guess. Affirming the consequent. Now you're with AC power. You don't have DC power. You have alternating current, right? You're affirming the antecedent. That's bad. Or affirming the consequent. That's very bad. Or you can deny the antecedent. You're brought forward to the district attorney, the DA. Okay, how about that for a memory aid? All right, now, let me give you an example. This is one that Bob had brought up while we were doing radio together, and I said, hold it right there, Bob. You're a genius. I said, hold that thought, and he gave it to me, and so I want to share this one with you. It's very good. It's a summary of Deuteronomy 27, 26, and Galatians 3.10. I'm just putting it in a hypothetical syllogism. This accurately reflects the data in those passages. Okay, I'm summarizing. It says, if you don't obey the law, then you are cursed. Well, let's think for ourselves a moment, what error the Word of Faith movement performs when they would look at a passage like this. Think about in the Word of Faith movement, they end up really affirming the consequent. Okay, and here's what they would say. They affirm the consequent, which would do what? They say, you are cursed, therefore you don't obey all the law. Well, wait a minute, is that the only reason that you may be cursed. You see, that's an invalid deduction. Remember in John chapter 9, you have the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, or I think maybe it was actually the disciples, they say to Jesus, hey, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? And what does Jesus say? It was neither. There's a third option. It was to glorify God. It's a false dichotomy. Thank you. Yes. Way to pull it together, Andy. (laughs) Yes. So, notice what they've done then in the Word of Faith movement is they committed a fallacy by affirming the consequent. They say, you are, it says, then you are not cursed, I'm sorry, you are cursed, therefore what? You don't obey the law. That's a fallacy. Okay, now let me give you another one. This would be for those who believe in works righteousness. They would deny the antecedent. They would say you don't, don't obey the law, which means what? You do obey the law, therefore what? You're not cursed. Does that follow? You obey the law, therefore you're not cursed? That's not an option in biblical Christianity. That would be an invalid deduction. Okay, is everybody with me? Does everybody see how those invalid deductions occur? Okay, I'm getting short on time here. Let me move right along. Um, By the way, I'm around all week. If anybody has any questions, say I'm really confused on this, call me. I'll help you through it or email me. Or call Bob or Andy. (laughs) All right, let's get into some biblical usage. Let me show you an example from Romans in just a moment here. Hypothetical syllogisms, these are called conditionals. I already mentioned that in the Bible. Let me give you an example. Romans 4.2, Paul reasons this. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works... The then is implied. This is a classical hypothetical syllogism. If Abraham was justified by works, then is implied he has something to boast about, but not before God. Notice what is Paul performing here to this syllogism. Notice what's in white. He says, but not before God. What is he really doing? He's really denying the consequent, isn't he? That's valid. In other words, notice he, at the very the, well, the portion that's in green right here. It says that he has something to boast about, but Paul is saying he does not have something to boast about. He's negating the consequent or denying the consequent. So if he's negating the consequent, what's the result of that? Well, he's saying he does not have something to boast about, therefore Abraham was not justified by works. Now let me talk about the significance of this in your Bible study. Let's say you have a Bible study, and you have just a few verses to go through, and you use Romans 4 too. And you see this valid deduction that Paul makes. Think about the strength of it. Because the premises are coming from the scriptures, from Paul the Apostle, we know the premises are true. Paul makes a valid deduction and therefore what? The conclusion is necessarily true. Now, who is Abraham? He's being used by Paul as an example of all people. So if the conclusion then is validly that Abraham was not justified by works, then no human is justified by works. That is not just your thought for the scriptures. That's not just your idea that you came up with. That's a necessary application. And if anyone says that they don't agree with you, they're wrong. It's a necessary conclusion. One of the things that concerned Bob and I when we were at the old building was we were coming up with necessary conclusions from the scriptures and we had men were saying well that's not valid what do you mean it's not valid it necessarily flows from Scripture and therefore because the premises were true the structure was valid it was a necessary application okay that's why we're in this building today don't ever let anyone say that that's not a valid application if you derive it from Scripture like that okay so you can look at these things I think and even help you with your Bible studies now let me give you one more here further road. Let's talk about this idea of perseverance. We as Christians believe in the perseverance of the saints. That is that every true Christian who is elect, saved by God, will persevere unto the end by God's power. They will keep believing. But what we're taught in Scripture is that this perseverance is by faith. Notice I say not by mysticism or by sight. Okay, let me give you an example of this from Romans 8, and I'll show you where our handy-dandy Syllogisms come into play. Paul says in Romans 8, 24 through 25, he says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now what's very interesting is notice in the beginning of this verse, verse 24, Paul's talking about hope. But what we have to realize is the hope that he's referring to is really synonymous with saving faith. In the previous verse, verse 23, he's talking about really belief in the resurrection, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, But proof that hope is synonymous with faith, notice the, what he says. He says, for in hope we have been saved. Well, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by faith. Exactly. Hope and faith are used interchangeably. So you could literally say, for in faith we have been saved, but faith that is seen is not faith, for who has faith for what he already sees? Is everybody with me in the logic there? They're used interchangeably. All right? Now, notice this very interesting line when Paul says, for who hopes or who has faith for what he already sees? Let's stop there for just a moment. Bob has mentioned this a few times in the early part of Galatians. Think about the Israelites. In Exodus 32, the Israelites, are at Mount, they're at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to be with the Lord. And what happens is they immediately fall away. They can't see Moses. They can't see God. And they want to live by sight, not by faith. They're mystics. They have to have tangibility. So what do they do? They build their tangibility, don't they? They build their golden calf. Why? Because they can see that. That's what Bob has been saying about mysticism all these years. People who don't have faith want to see something. Okay, now what we're going to do is let's perform a valid deduction. Let's deny the consequent in this hypothetical portion of the sentence. And notice if we do that, I just wrote it out. Here's a denying of the consequent, the green portion. We are not waiting for it, that is our hope, with perseverance, That is the resurrection, right? Therefore, we don't hope or we don't have faith for what we do not see. Is that clear? So if we're not persevering, the reason why we're not persevering is because we don't have faith in what's not seen. All right? So I want you to think of the importance of that then when it comes to mysticism. Mystics are saying, I must see something. I will not be governed in this life and have faith in what is not seen. And so they're lining up with those who are at the golden calf. Okay, now again, can you come up with that without using a hypothetical syllogism? I think so. But it certainly helps, I think, when you say, hey, I'm going to deny the consequent, perform a valid deduction. It helps you see it more clearly. But that is a valid deduction, and therefore it's a necessary conclusion. Okay, does everybody follow me on that? All right, now, we're out of time, but I want to give you all a homework assignment. Oh, boy. Yeah, just what you wanted, right? And again, if you have uh, any questions, call me during the week. Here's your assignment. John 644. Now, this is tricky, but here's what I want you to do. And don't worry if you can't do it. It's fine. I don't even expect you to be able to, but just it's fun to try. It's like a crossword puzzle from the New York Times. Try to put this in an if this, then that sentence structure. This is a conditional sentence, okay? The, uh, and let me help you out a little bit. Notice where it says, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's not part of the conditional sentence or the syllogism. So you're working with the, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So work with it and try to get it to make sense in an if this, then that logical sequence and then we'll work on some of those things next week and so next week is going to be all biblical we're going to go through four different classes of conditionals working with these type of sentences and gleaning a lot of i think um scriptural knowledge from that and my prayer for you is that when you read scholars and commentaries it's going to open it up to you when they're talking about a protesis and a hypothesis and all these things you're going to say you know what i know that and if you, if you don't remember, you'll say, I know where I can look that up and find out very quickly. And you go to Andy's website, and away you go. Okay? Or Gospel of Grace or whatever. Okay. So with that, let me just uh, bow our heads in prayer. Now let's just thank the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time together. I pray again that this has not just been an exercise where we're uh, trying to sound smart here. We're not, Lord. We ask that you would give us a heart to know you and your kingdom, that we'd be those who are moved to share the truth of the gospel with others in a very accurate way. And I do pray blessings upon my brothers and sisters as they work through these things so that we would be better students of your word again and that we'd be better equipped to contend for the faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.